0: Good morning, everyone. Thanks for uh, for being here today. We're grateful that you've taken time not only to be in worship, but then to be with us. Uh, we need you. Uh, I hope that you're encouraged by us, but we're absolutely encouraged to be together as God's family. I believe it delights him. I think it's a good thing for us to be together. And uh, our hope is to encourage and to benefit you. So over the course of the morning, if there's anything that we're doing or anything we're saying that you feel like, I want more information about that, that could be helpful. Please feel free to ask. There's a lot of formal ways to get connected that Zach just mentioned, but there are a ton of informal ways as well. And uh, most of those informal ways include you being a little courageous, tapping somebody on the shoulder, and saying, Hey, could you help me? So please feel free to do that as well. Before we study the Bible together, which is a great privilege of mine to help us do that, we're going to pray together. What we're going to do is we're going to pray for gospel partners. Every month, at a a minimum, we try to highlight people that we have sent out, people that have worshiped with us and then have felt a call of God to go and to be faithful Christians in other parts of the world, many times in places where Jesus is not known. And I want to pray this morning with you for Joel and Sarah. They are serving in West Asia and have a number of things that they have asked us to be remembering and to be praying with them and for them. So let me outline a couple of them. A few of these are gonna be obvious and then uh, one maybe not so obvious. So they have asked for continued help in learning language, uh, which of course is a, is a big deal. It is a, a daunting task to show up in a place to communicate some, I mean, everybody can, can communicate. There's some English spoken, of course, as well as you, you can really just communicate with someone more than you'd think uh, through connecting in life with them. But in order to fully engage, they are studying. And studying in the course of living in a new place with a family is a difficult thing. And so they've asked for success, maybe even supernatural success. Um, We don't have to tell them that we're praying for the gift of tongues for them, but that's what they've asked for. And so I'm going to pray for that this morning, uh, quite, quite literally. Second, they've mentioned encouragement. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who have filled out surveys, who have asked for information, who have looked for or wanted a Bible, asked for people to meet with them. But that encouragement has also brought sadness because I think they see the lack of workers, lack of people there to follow up. There are cities where some of these requests are coming in and there is not a single known Christian. And so they have asked that we would do what is commanded of us in scripture to join them in praying that God would send workers into the harvest field. So language gift of tongues for short, that's longer actually, and then workers into the harvest field, workers into the harvest field, and then finally Joel and Sarah are in the next couple of months, about three months from now, expecting twin girls. So in addition to all that that I just mentioned in praying, they have found out that they have uh, a couple of girls coming to join their family, which is wonderful and exciting and worthy of celebration uh, but i'm sure you can imagine also something to be praying for them about so i think that's about the about the list we pray that they study well we pray that god sends workers to help them and into other places and then that he would support them and care for them and provide for them and give them anticipation as their family is about to expand would you pray with me let's pray God, thank you for for reports for communication from people that we love that we have been a part of sending that we prayed for i thank you for good reports of joel and sarah being settled of them finding a place to live and meeting neighbors and having really profitable conversations many of them uh, deeply spiritual with the people around them I pray you'd continue to give them little bits of encouragement like that I ask that even outside of mornings like this God please let this moment as we pray together corporately be be a down payment be a, a kind of stirring something that would induce a hunger in us a, to remember to pray for this family God I ask that you would give them an ability to Apprehend, to take in, and then to begin to apply language very, very quickly. I ask that they would make transitions in small ways, learning of new vocabulary, maybe not stumbling over the things that they've stumbled over in the past, but then also in big ways as well. I pray that they would have moments of switching over a kind of heart language that they would dream and think. And begin to operate more in the language of the people that they love and are seeking to be faithful amongst. So help them in the swirl of life and needs and family that they would be able to study. Have clear minds that you would loosen their hearts, their minds, and their tongues to be faithful. God, I ask as well, their. They're seeing encouragement. They see people asking for scripture, for conversation, desiring to hear about you. And at the same time, there are very few people to meet that need. It is indeed true that the fields are white for harvest. But you've asked us to, to pray that you would send workers. And so we ask you Father, would you send scores even now in church services across the world and especially across our nation? Would you stir in the hearts and in the minds of many to pour themselves out, to be given away for the sake of the gospel in the nations? Would it not please you, Father, to send Many who claim your son and who proclaim him in the world. Spirit of God, please do that work and meet the needs of those who are seeking. And God, I pray as well, very specifically, that you would provide for them as they expect and are anticipating twins soon. Would you especially be with Sarah? Protect her, give her health, give her energy and vitality in the months to come. I pray that you would calm her spirit and her mind, help her to focus on and to see all of the good that she is about to receive. I ask that there would be no, or at least very few, um, effects or impacts or hindrances that come with a pregnancy like this. I pray for doctors and nurses and hospitals to pay close attention no hiccups along the way. God, I ask that you provide for them financially, emotionally with people around them to care for them, and that this gift, this wonderful, sweet gift of two little girls would be welcomed with great joy into their family. I thank you for the way that even in the midst of their faithfulness, that you are bringing new life. Help us to rejoice with them in this as well, even though they're far away, that they would sense and know our love and our care and our excitement with them. So thank you for the gift of Joel and Sarah, for gospel partners in general, and I pray that you would remind us of the needs around the world. Help us to, to think think beyond the, the very real needs and suffering that we have, to think beyond that, and to recognize that you are a global God who loves the nations So please, God, give us that reminder. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, Romans chapter 2 is where we're going to be, Romans 2. So if you uh, need a Bible, there should be one in front of you, a hardcover one that looks just about like this, Uh, identical to this. Feel free to grab that and take it with you. If you need a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. But I'm going to begin reading in the 17th verse of Romans chapter 2. And this is why we're in Romans. A number of weeks ago, we're a little over a month now, we determined to begin at the first chapter of Romans and then try to study all the way through it. That's our practice. We think that it's a healthy and a good practice to get the whole counsel of God that way. And we have considered the theme of all of Romans to be the idea that God has somehow made the unjust just. He has taken people who do not deserve forgiveness, do not deserve righteousness, and he's given them righteousness. So we put a tagline on the book of Romans, rags to righteous, and our hope is as we read through these pages that you are convinced more and more and more of two things. One, you're convinced to abandon any effort that you have or any attempt to impress God or to live according to your own righteousness, that you would see more clearly just exactly how much you need. That sin would be more real to you and you would say to yourself, if it is up to me, I'm lost. That that would be something that is, is in us, that we see that. And then secondarily, at the same time, that more and more and more you would see the glorious gift of God that you can be declared righteous in Christ. That God will actually take someone like you and like me and he will legally declare And not only legally declare and say, I'm going to wipe away all the sin, but then he's going to pile on you and us a kind of righteousness that we never earned and welcome us into a family. And I pray that both of those realities, the humbling that comes with examining our sin, and the joy that comes with receiving grace, that those become so obvious to us that we can't miss it. In fact, maybe I should just say right now, if we miss that, if this is an academic study and we don't get deeper in our souls this reality, then we are to be pitied, I think. Maybe that's too harsh. How about I'll say it for me? I would be to be, I would be pitied, I think. I should be pitied if I miss it. So let's not miss it. Where I'm going to pick up reading in the 17th verse of Romans chapter 2 is Paul's attempt to help a certain kind of person. So in Romans chapter 1, his attempt is to help them to consider and to see that there is righteousness available to the worst of people, the most flagrant of sinners. And in Romans chapter 2, we're going to see that Paul is trying to help another kind of person namely Jewish people who believed that they were on the inside. They were the elite people, the exception to the rule, those people who had God's attention and esteem. He's going to try to show them that they are still in great need. So let's start in verse 17, and he's speaking to that kind of person. Here's what Romans chapter 2 says. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God... And know his will and approve what is excellent, because you were instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's ask for help, for light. Spirit of God, help us. We are few thousand years removed from this context, from this writer, and it is and remains your grace and a merciful miracle that we can be instructed and transformed and changed because of your word. So help us to get the spirit of this thing Help us to understand what needs to be understood. More than that, to apply what needs to be applied. God, help me to be as clear as I can be and that us collectively, that we as your people, would be humble and receive your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul now very clearly Not for exactly the first time, but for more or less, I would say the most pointed time so far in this letter, he's going to address a certain kind of person. And that certain kind of person is not just a moral person, but a moral person who believes that by birth they are on the inside. They have a fast track. Everyone else has taken the slow lane, the slog-along, plodding lane to justification before God, but Jewish people believed that they had an inside track. They were insiders. what an insider is, an insider is someone who doesn't have to use the information that everyone else uses because they have more. An insider is a kind of person who can be an exception to the rule because they help to make the rules or they know the people who could excuse the rules. And the Jewish people of this day, even those who were in the church and those who were engaging with Christ, believed that they still had an inside track that gave them a leg up. They were trusting in something, trusting in their knowledge, or trusting in the way that they lived their life, or the things that they had read, or the people that they were. And Paul wants to show them that if they have Christ plus anything else, they have nothing. That there is a way to be an insider, that the desire to be an insider is a good thing, but not like they think. So the question becomes, who is an insider, and how do you become one? That's what's being discussed here at the at the end of Romans two. There's a famous section in C.S. Lewis, I believe, in *Mere Christianity*, where he talks about everyone's innate desire to want to be on the inside. We want to be a part of the group. Just bear with me. You want to be in the room where it happens, right? You, you. You need to be there. There's a sense that being excluded is the worst thing in the world. Everybody wants to be elite. Everybody wants to be inside. You want to feel like you're known, but more than that, that you've been welcomed in. Famously, the Michael Scott joke. He loves inside jokes. He really hopes to be a part of one someday. (laughs) Everyone wants to be inside, and Paul's going to address that very thing in the Jewish people. And he's going to say, it's okay to want to be an insider, but how does one get there? In order to get there, we're going to have to address something that's been a massive hurdle for this particular group of people, and that is hypocrisy. So I'm going to break down what's happening here in Romans chapter 2 in a few different ways. First, we're going to look at the charge of hypocrisy. This is the offense, if we want to use words like that. This is the offense, a charge of hypocrisy. And then I want to look at and consider the idea of What hypocrisy actually is? I want to define hypocrisy for a moment because I think that it's it's easy to imagine hypocrisy as anything that I don't like or that person failing and I want to make sure I take time to consider and define hypocrisy and then finally I want to help us defend. So there's an offense at the beginning and then we're going to define hypocrisy and then I want to help us defend against it. It turns out the Jewish people are not the only ones prone to this And especially if you're anxious to want to be presented or to be received, you might have a tendency to say, I want to be an insider and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And so we may be prone to potential hypocrisy and I want to help us defend against it. So first, let me just point out that Paul makes a clear charge of hypocrisy. He opens it by a series of rhetorical statements. Although if you were paying careful attention as a Jewish person, you were probably slightly offended at the start. Because note how he, what he says in verse 17. He says, if you call yourself a Jew. Now imagine you're an insider. You're a person who is proud of your heritage, your lineage. And someone introduces a statement like that. Imagine you have stuck through it in every winning and non-winning season for FSU. You buy the insider stuff. You still go to the games. You were there in August noon games. Right? You're, you're just everything, you you read every comment on war chant, you stalk 16 and 17-year-old athletes. Sorry, I don't mean to be rude, but you know what I mean. (laughs) And then if somebody came to you and said, well, but if you call yourself an FSU fan, can you sense what might stir up in somebody? (laughs) What, what, What do you mean? So they're bona fides are in question right at the outset. And so he starts with this series of questions. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and he's going to go through a series of things that are good. But he wants to point out their universal need of the gospel, that though they believe they're inside, that until they have Christ, they're still, in fact, outside. And so he wants to discuss all of the things that they've been relying on. And I want to say something from the outset. Jewish people believing that they had benefits as the nation of Israel, that is not wrong. Unbelievable. I'm just gonna keep just gonna keep going. Jewish people were in some ways given great benefits. It was not just anyone that was called and sent off to be a light to the nations. In fact, Abram was called from his place, from his land, and he was said, you are going to go and I'm going to make you a great nation and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So they were not totally wrong to realize they were given some things that other peoples were not given. They were supposed to be a light to the world. They were given the prophets. They had the law. They were set apart. They were kept by God through many insane circumstances for the coming Messiah. And he lists them out here in his rhetorical statement. Well, if you call yourself a Jew, and then he lists some of the things that legitimately were of benefit to them. They had the law. They can boast in God as theirs. God had told them over and over again I'm going to be your God. I am in your midst. I am for you. They have his revealed will. That's what these verses tell us in Romans chapter 2. They have his revealed will. They've been instructed. In some ways, if they had done this rightly, they would in fact be a guide to the blind and a light of the world. So with all of that potentially going right, how did they miss it? What's his complaint? What is he charging them with if they had in some way gotten those things right? Well, in a word, the charge here is hypocrisy. He says to them through a series of questions, You teach all of these things, and you're supposed to be a guide to the blind. That would be great if you could actually see. But what you won't admit is that you yourself are still blind. He says, it would be great if you were a light to the world, but you're living in darkness. You teach and speak and say what should be done, but turn around and do all of those things. this concept or this idea of them having truth but not living according to it is a devastating devastating spiritual charge in verse 24 he seems to grab a quotation from isaiah chapter 52 and the main complaint here in isaiah in chapter 52 is that israel who's supposed to point to the glory of god and be an example in the nations instead has become a byword and a reason for the nations to profane in fact, there's numerous times throughout the prophets where God's complaint against his people is essentially this. He says, I set you up to be a light and you're supposed to go over there and point to my name, but instead everywhere you go, people blaspheme me and they laugh and mock me. They profane my name. One good example that I'm going to come back to later, and I think that Paul maybe had this in mind, though it doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to be quoting it specifically, is Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36 we'll look at that really quickly and I would forgive you if you didn't have this from your devotion to the top of your head it's not often we go into Ezekiel but let's look starting in verse 22 of Ezekiel chapter 36 we'll see this complaint very clearly from God that he hates hypocrisy it says therefore say to the house of Israel thus says the Lord God it is not for your sake o house of Israel that I'm about to act is the promise and the prophecy of God. He determines that this will happen, and it's two-sided. First, Israel must realize that rather than being a source of glory of God among the nations, they have caused his name to be profaned. That when God's people are supposed to point to and be winsome as as a testimony for someone to enjoy and delight in God, their life instead causes people to say i don't want anything to do with that god he's a joke how many of you when i read this or say the word hypocrisy think of that historic literary classic jesus freak you guys remember that dc talk song I can distinctly remember the first time that I realized that that DC Talk song was gonna be a big deal. I was working at a gas station at the Town Mart in Manville where three highways meet, you'll find much more. And I was running that place. It was my 14 year old job. And I had to help a lady with some oil that she spilled all over everything in the front. And I'm just wrapping that up and I'm going to walk back in and take up my post behind the counter where I sold all kinds of discount cigarettes. I made ice cream and charged gas and the whole deal. And they had a radio station that was playing to the people outside pumping gas and it was a christian song that came on the radio and now i'm a i'm a church kid and i would heard this song once or twice before from other church kids but this was the secular radio station and the song was playing and i remember thinking that the whole world had turned upside down i think at the moment if you would have told me that dc talk was going to usher in a worldwide revival i would have believed you so this song meant something to me back then, and maybe you remember the line about hypocrisy. There is a quote in this song from Brennan Manning, who famously wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And in the song, some music behind it, and it kind of breaks. It says this, the, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle, That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That phrase, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The charge here is hypocrisy. There is something about the way that these people live, and this way, Brennan Manning applies this to Christians, God is applying to Israel as well. The unbelieving world around Israel found God unbelievable because of the way that they lived, mainly because they refuse to actually live according to what they proclaimed. So that'll be helpful. This has devastating consequences. This is God himself who says, I am being mocked among the nations because of this hypocrisy. It's a big deal. So we ought to define hypocrisy and say, well, how do we make sure to pay attention for this and not let this happen? And here's what I would say, as a basic definition of hypocrisy, hypocrisy, especially a kind of settled hypocrisy, which is what we should most be careful about, is a consistent refusal to do what one instructs or requires of others. Now, sometimes this instruction and requiring of others is explicit. You're actually the instructor. You're the parent who bans smoking, but that hypocrite smokes two packs a day, right? You're that kind of hypocrite because of explicit hypocritical instruction but i would say that as well a settled hypocrisy can come in because of a consistent refusal to do what one instructs or requires of others even it seems like based on the first part of chapter two in romans even by a kind of judgmental spirit or a standard by which you're judging others It is living according to those uneven or unbalanced scales that we saw earlier. Hypocrisy, a kind of subtle form of hypocrisy, is associated with pride, exceptionalism, and ultimately exhibits a devastating lack of integrity. Sometimes to define things, it helps to think about the opposites. It's why we learned antonyms in school, and I think oftentimes the opposite of hypocrisy is the word integrity integrity has this idea of wholeness there's not a weakness in it that what is presented from top to bottom is given as a whole there is congruence and hypocrisy breaks that congruence because what should be lined up in motivations and words and actions is missing in a person that is demanding something from others, they are unable or actually more so unwilling to do themselves. And what is being pointed out here, what Paul says to those people who are living in the midst of Christians and those who are on the outside considering the claim of Christianity, is that these Jewish people are showing a lack of integrity. Now, this is not a new charge. This charge has been clear, especially in the Old Testament. We just read from Ezekiel. Isaiah has the same claim against his people. Jesus picks up this theme, and of the things that he says the most clearly, it seems like hypocrisy of the Pharisees is one of Jesus' main messages. I'm going to read just one example. You could find many. We'll go to Matthew chapter 23. So Matthew 23, starting in verse 1. Now imagine this. Imagine how clear this charge is. It says in verse 1 of Matthew 23, Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples. So he's describing to a crowd of people, including those who are most close to him, following. And then he he says to them, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now he is calling out a particular group of people in front of all who will listen. Their hypocrisy is so serious to Jesus that he felt this needed a public excortiation. Is that a word? Excoriate. Okay. <laughs> seemed like it was. <laughs> the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, sit on Moses' seat. And they were given that spot. They didn't make it up. They were given that spot. That's a privilege. They sit on Moses' seat, And we're going to come back to this because there is a connection between what they do, what they say, and then more so what they love. What do they love? What are they after? Why is hypocrisy a challenge for them? Jesus tells us because they want to be seen. They love the place of honor. They make broad phylacteries. Which is a devastating insult that we've lost completely. Hypocrisy is a lack of integrity, consistent refusal to do what one requires in motivation, heart, mind, and in words for others, driven by, and this is going to be a key, driven by a desire to be seen, known, and lauded as something that you're not. One other thing to mention in a definition of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not making mistakes. Hypocrisy is not failing to get to a vision or a goal that you wish that you'd got to. Hypocrisy is not the honest failing of fulfilling a promise, the recognition of that failing, and the asking of forgiveness. It is very, very possible to acknowledge that you won't be able to live up to what you say. In fact, this is a danger for anyone who ever stands on any kind of conviction. Light creates responsibility. And the moment that you see something and declare it to others, you're bound by it in a certain way. I think it's why James chapter 3 says, here's the deal. Not many of you should become teachers. Because let me tell you what's really dangerous, knowing things. Isn't that a funny bit of wisdom in the Bible? Solomon was the most wise man ever. And he sounds like a middle schooler trying to go to math class. He's like, let me tell you where sorrow increases, where knowledge increases. The point, though, is that you can understand that principle and say to yourself, I know that I won't be able to live up perfectly to what I say, but there is truth out there. It exists. and There's something to be lived for. And when I fall short... I will confess it, and I will ask for forgiveness. I insist on this part of the definition of hypocrisy and bring it up this morning because sometimes the claim of hypocrisy against Christians or the church or whatever institution in history is is not actually hypocrisy. Sometimes you need to defend yourself against the claim of hypocrisy. Sometimes you need to insist, no, 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 get this straight, I am not a hypocrite. I am a miserable failure, but I am not a hypocrite. You have to insist on that sometimes. Because the message of Christianity, after all, is we all fall short. We can't get there. I'm not better than you. I need mercy like you wouldn't believe. Paul starts his gospel by saying, well, let me tell you about sinners. I'm the chief sinner, and it's a miracle that anyone gets in, including me. Christians who start with that message are on good ground— And I believe sometimes they need to defend themselves against the charge of hypocrisy. Other times, though, we are just plain hypocrites. So the question becomes, if God cares about this so much, he decries it over and over and over again through the Old Testament. If Jesus made a point to point this out, a point to point this out, and if we can sense or think that it might be a possibility still today. If we're not going to get at the gospel the way that we need to, if we can't push this off, then I want to offer some ideas or some thoughts of how do we defend against this kind of hypocrisy? Here's a few ideas. And I think that it's instructed and given us some hints here throughout Romans chapter 2. I'm going to start with some of the most basic and then get down to what I believe is the most grounding in Romans 2, especially at the end. First, in order to guard against being a hypocrite, what's the defensive playbook? In order to guard against being a hypocrite, the first is to admit the possibility that you, in fact, could be a hypocrite. Not morbid examination, not navel-gazing kind of thing, but it is very, very possible that we have made peace with a certain lack of integrity in our life. And we haven't brought ourselves yet to, to admit or to say out loud just what it is that we lack. So we need to admit the possibility to not always be on the defense. I said earlier that the Christian message starts with, I'm a sinner. And if we're saying that, then we can properly defend against the charge of hypocrisy. But the reality is, is that oftentimes that's not the case. We can, in fact, be moralistic, legalistic, judgmental, and ask something of others that we do not do ourselves. So one ought to examine themselves and admit the possibility that it's not just Jewish people who may be believed. Perhaps you have some areas of hypocrisy yourself. Perhaps you are trusting some sort of inside path that allows you to opt out of what everyone else has to do. Second, a way to defend against hypocrisy. Beware of growing in knowledge without a commensurate growth and application. Beware the knowledge application gap. I said in jest earlier that where knowledge increases, sorrow increases as well. One of the reasons that is true And it's not just a funny statement. It's a deep bit of wisdom. Is because there is great danger in being someone who constantly grows in knowledge but never takes the time to apply. Famously in Greek, there's a few different words for knowledge, for knowing. There's a word for knowing that just means mental assent. I saw that information once, so I know it. Maybe like I'm acquaintances with. Oh, do you know Michael Jordan? Yeah. I know Michael Jordan. There's a second word that indicates more of not just basic knowledge, not just sort of I have a mental assent to that thing, but I know, I have appropriated, I am intimate with, it's a part of who I am. And in that way, if you use that word, do you know Michael Jordan? (laughs) like, no. I don't think I've ever been in the same room as him. One of my great regrets is never seeing him play basketball in person. So not only have I never been in the same room as him as far as I know, but no, I don't know him like that. I don't have a knowledge like that. And the reality for us, especially in an information age, those of us living on the other side of the Enlightenment, We have or can get a settled conviction that all we need for transformation is more information. Many of us believe that if we could just take in some more info, everything will change and be better. And we become information junkies, all the while not realizing that we are increasing the danger signal of hypocrisy. Do you know how easy it is in the information age to just get more and more and more and new and new and new information? this is dangerous. It might be better to learn less, but to apply more. When was the last time you learned something or came across a passage of scripture or found a book or recognized something in your life that you knew needed to be? When was the last time, instead of moving to get all of the best and more and more information on it, you simply sat with it a while and said, I want to apply. I want to be changed. I want to meditate on this thing. I do believe that in many ways, information has been idolized on this side of the enlightenment. We say we're not necessarily enlightenment people, but we sure believe that we can reason our way to all the transformation that is necessary. So one reason that hypocrisy is a danger for us is because knowledge is so easy and we've idolized it as a good substitute for being actually transformed. You know another reason that hypocrisy is a a problem or the danger levels go up when we gain information is because gaining information is way easier than learning to apply it. It's just way easier. Easier said than done is a statement for a reason. very insightful quotation from G.K. Chesterton. He says this about so many who would reject Christianity, having considered some of its claims. He said, it turns out that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, but rather it has been found difficult and left untried. It has been found difficult and left untried, and I think that's what happens for a lot of us with information, and I am as guilty of this as anyone because I love information. I'm curious as the day is long. I'll find myself down the craziest of Wikipedia rapid trails. I once spent hours learning about different kettlebells and kettlebells activities. Do you think for a second I'm gonna work out with a kettlebell? Never. (laughs) Way easier to read about it. I find that when I click the YouTube video of someone else doing the kettlebell instruction, I'm a lot less sweaty than when I have to do it myself. And I would say that we must be careful we must be careful about being a kind of Christian community that loves and traffics in information, that substitutes real heart transformation with simply more good knowledge. Because this, I believe, leaves us open to a charge of hypocrisy. It's what happened with the Jewish people. They had everything. They were instructors. They were guides to the blind. They had all of the knowledge, the embodiment of knowledge in the law. They thought they were insiders, but what Paul wants to tell them is they were outside. And then he gives them the greatest example to remind them of the thing that is ultimately necessary. You can never be an insider, he's going to tell them, by simply changing the outside. is a lengthy conversation about circumcision to show them that the prize jewel, the idea of them being a part of this ethnic community, the change on the outward, is nothing if there is not a commensurate change inwardly, that ultimately to understand the gospel to be an insider is to realize that it changes and starts from a change inside out. This would have blown people's minds. He tells them, here's the thing, Jewish people, he already said to them in chapter two, sometimes Jewish people, you are not actually Jewish people. More than that, get this, Jewish people, sometimes Gentile people who don't have the law when they obey the law instinctually because of a conscience inside of them, they're more Jewish than you. More than that, do you realize, Jewish people, that even though you're circumcised, sometimes it's as though you weren't? And there are people who, though they are not, it is as though they were. And ultimately, The best guard against hypocrisy is to beg for and depend on God for an inside-out life. That to be an insider is not to have some sort of special privilege or to be impressive yourself, but to have your heart, mind, soul changed inside out. That when you encounter someone... What would, it, what would it say about who God is in our gospel if you encountered Christians and what you found over the course of time is that there was more transformation in life going on inside than anything that was visible outside? We would be the, the upside-down Pharisees. They loved to have broad phylacteri- phylacteries and long fringes and the place of honor and to be seen, but had death inside Christians might be those who are willing to look, look or to, to die to themselves on the outside, to not have to receive the honor, but they are full of life on the inside. What's it going to take to get to that place? Well, it's going to take what God promised in Ezekiel chapter 36, that he would pour out his spirit, that he would make them clean, that he would take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And ultimately, even those who had the knowledge, the embodiment of the law and knowledge needed to be changed From the inside out. You can't gussy yourself up enough. You can't will your way there. You can't read your way there. You can't just info dump your way there. Transformation starts from the inside or it means nothing. It's how we're going to defend ultimately against hypocrisy is to see our need, to admit that we're all sinners, and to invite others into that kind of transparent, confessing, repenting life. Let's pray that God helps us with this. God, I ask that you would make us whole, people of integrity, We don't want to declare that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't want to declare that we're justified by grace through faith. But then live as though we are impressive. Live for the glory, for the honor of others. God, kill that in us. Where we're tempted to hide, to preen, to parade ourselves around. I pray, God, that you would change us. You'd help us to see. And I ask here this morning, Spirit of God, would you continue the good work that you do? Give us hearts of flesh. Change us from the inside out. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.